welcome. This is Ryan Asperson with another episode of Poetry Up Close. This is the poetry podcast that takes a new critical, close reading perspective on 20th century modern poetry. Today, we're going to be looking at another villanelle. Last time on episode two, I took a look at Elizabeth Bishop's villanelle, One Art. And if you don't know what a villanelle is, in general, it's a form of poetry in which lines come back again and again throughout the poem in refrain, usually the same line, but there can be a little adjustment. The overall effect is, is pretty intense, and depending on the tone, the mood, the subject matter of the poem, these refraining lines can build up quite an emotional impact. If you want to find out more about Elizabeth Bishop's One Art as a Villanelle, uh, and or about the form of the villanelle itself, definitely check out episode two. For this episode, episode three, I'm going to get more into the actual poem as opposed to the form of the poem. So we have a poem entitled Mad Girl's Love Song, and it's by the so-called confessional poet Sylvia Plath. Um, you may know something about her her history. Very, very troubled history in a lot of ways. Elizabeth Bishop's One Art is a poem that I would categorize as being a more uh, universally centered poem. In other words, you read One Art and you can immediately feel the personal impact of it. It's a poem about loss uh, and the loss that comes with aging and distance and uh, the loss that comes with simply being a human moving on and moving forward. This poem, Sylvia Plath's Mad Girl's Love Song, is a much more subjective, personal-to-the-poet poem. It isn't so universal on the surface, but there are ways of thinking about it, I believe, that are universal. At the end of the day, any great poem is going to have something of the universal in it. Why? Poets are human beings, and human beings can only explore what is normal and natural and available to other human beings. So Mad Girl's Love Song is another villanelle with refraining lines. Let me do something a little different this time. Let me come right out of the gate with the poem itself. I'll read this to you, and then afterwards we'll take a look at some aspects of it. I want to talk about the you, quote-unquote, in the poem, as opposed to Elizabeth Bishop's one art, you, quote-unquote, I want to talk about the use of parenthesis, and I want to talk about the idea of song quotation. I also want to talk about with this poem the, the mental illness of it. So let me read the poem to you. It's called Mad Girl's Love Song. Mad girl meaning, obviously, a girl with mental illness, right? Mad in that British sense of, of madness. Mad Girl's love song. So we've got a love song as well here. Jarring juxtaposition. We have the love song of one who is mentally ill. Already Plath has, has got a reader's attention, undoubtedly. Here's the poem. I shut my eyes and all the world drops dead. I lift my lids and all is born again. I think I made you up inside my head. The stars go waltzing out in blue and red and arbitrary blackness gallops in. I shut my eyes, and all the world drops dead. 
I dreamt that you bewitched me into bed and sung me moonstruck, kissed me quite insane. I think I made you up inside my head. God topples from the sky. Hell's fires fade. Exit seraphim and Satan's men. I shut my eyes and all the world drops dead. I fancied you'd return the way you said. But I grow old and I forget your name. I think I made you up inside my head. I should have loved a thunderbird instead. At least when spring comes, they roar back again. I shut my eyes and all the world drops dead. I think I made you up inside my head. Of course, we can hear the rhyme both internal in terms of inside the lines and external at the ends of lines throughout the poem. There is an ABA rhyme scheme going on from terset to terset to terset. A terset is a three-line stanza. And you can hear that very, very audibly. Dead and head and red and dead and bed and head and fade and dead. That's a bit of an off-rhyme. Said, head, instead, dead, head, and so on. Then there's the refrain pairing. The two lines that come back again and again in the poem. The first one is, I shut my eyes and all the world drops dead. The second refrain is line three. I think I made you up inside my head. Now that line is in parentheses. It's almost like a voice within a voice. Almost as if the first two lines of the stanza, not in parentheses, are the voice of the speaker, possibly the poet. And then that third line in parentheses is almost like a little voice inside that voice. Another consciousness, if you will. And maybe that consciousness is, is wiser then the first consciousness, maybe not. The whole poem actually is bookended by quotation marks, as if it were in some ways a transcribed poem, or in this case, a song. The title is Mad Girl's Love Song. And so the quotation marks are really interesting. It, it's as if Sylvia Plath has lifted this song from an old book, for example, um, and put it down as if one would transcribe the lyrics to, you know, any kind of pop song. This refrain pairing again, I shut my eyes and all the world drops dead. Obviously we've got an image of sight here. The speaker shuts her eyes and the world just drops dead. As it would figuratively. The second refrain, I think I made you up inside my head, shows at once a predilection to illusion, to fiction, to, um, an alternate reality, and yet at the same time it's knowing. I think I made you up. There's an intelligence there. There is a self-analysis there, um, a kind of wherewithal, if you like, about her mental state, maybe even mental fragility. And then the extraordinary inner stanzas of the poem. The stars go waltzing, so we focus on that word waltzing. Stars obviously don't waltz. In fact, they don't even seem to move at all. But these stars waltz, indicating some kind of merriment. The stars go waltzing out in blue and red. An arbitrary blackness gallops in. So blackness arbitrarily gallops in like a horse. Do I know what all this literally means to Sylvia Plath? Is she speaking in some kind of a code? Is there a metaphoric symbology going on here that I need to sort of parse out? Possibly, if I'm going to do, let's say, doctoral studies in English, for uh, an everyday, a normal, average 
poetry-loving reader, I think we can focus on those two verbs, waltzing and gallops, and we can think about them. We can think about ways in which these manners of expression might be useful, might be helpful. In other words, what do they suggest? Waltzing indicates human merriment, happiness, artistry. Gallops is a very um, fierce, energetic, natural, animal kind of word. So we've got, in some way, that kind of juxtaposition going on already in the poem. She's dreamt that he's, or we actually don't know who the lover is, that he or she or it has bewitched her into bed and sung her moonstruck and kissed her quite insane. Not even just insane, but quite thoroughly insane. Notice this reverse gender witchery. If, in fact, the, uh, the you of the poem, if, in fact, is male, and it might not be. We don't know. We don't have any evidence inside the poem. But we do know that there's a sense of danger here. And also, I think, arguably, a sense of the, of the evil or the seeming evil of lust, uh, even of love, uh, a dark, perhaps obsessive love. So much so that God topples, topples like a puppet, like uh, a ball or a pin, uh, a bowling pin or something, you know, sort of uh, wobbly anyway, topples. God doesn't just fall from the sky, God topples. Hell's fires fade, right? So no God, no hell. Exit seraphim, the angels, and Satan's men, demons, devils. No God, no Satan, no good, no evil. All has been vanquished, all is banished. She has shut her eyes and all the world as well as seemingly the other worlds. All of these worlds drop dead. I fancied you'd return the way you said, but I grow old and I forget your name. Fairly literal. But of course, the last line of that stanza is, in parenthesis, I think I made you up inside my head. So once more, we have to think about forgetting. We have to think about, um, again, the creation of illusion. What is the reality of this situation? And the answer is we can't know. But we do know that the speaker is wrestling with her identity in the sense of who she is and, as a consequence, what she's knowing, whom she is seeing. The last stanza, I should have loved a thunderbird instead. A thunderbird in Native American mythology is a bird that returns every spring. This is validated by the second line, which says, at least when spring comes, they roar back again. It's kind of like a phoenix, but it's, it's a different mythological bird. And then, of course, the, the final refrains of the refrain lines at the end, I shut my eyes and all the world drops dead. I think I made you up inside my head. Seeing versus believing. She sees things, she believes certain things, she's unsure about other things, she wants to make different choices, she's unaware of how much control she has, in fact, over her choices. She is in a love that is insane, quite mad, and how much of that madness has caused her own madness, we, and even she, I think, can't really tell. We have a, a, a poem of anguish here. There's a crying out. If you remember from last episode, Elizabeth Bishop's one art was a very measured, down-to-earth, uh, prosaic, and not in a dull or bad way, but 
it's the poem of an older, rational, uh, experienced person looking back on her life and tallying up losses and learning to live with loss and also learning to transmute that loss into poetic art. In this Villanelle by Sylvia Plath, Mad Girl's Love Song, there is no such redemption. There is no such concrete insight. There is no such clear understanding of the world. In fact, just the opposite, there is in some ways no world any longer. She is banishing. She is um, running away from. She is tearing down. She is destroying. And all she's left with is her growing old, her forgetting the name of her demon, witch, lover, let's say. She exists in a very tight, isolated, closed off, self and other obsessed state of mind, which is perilous and wobbly. And as God topples from the sky, so her mind is in the process of toppling. Another difference between this poem and Bishop's One Art is that the you in this poem has a much more powerful, indeed sinister role. The you that the poem is singing to is full of agency, full of possibly malevolence, full of darkness. And yet there's an enticement here for the speaker. There's a love, there's a lust. So this you is a much more heightened and dramatic figure in this Villanelle. The you, if you remember from one art, Elizabeth Bishop, is much more, is much more privately held onto by the speaker. We know about the you's, uh, a little bit about the you's personality in that poem, but, but not much. And the you of the poem doesn't have any obvious impact on the speaker. There's clearly an impact there, but it's it's not nearly so dramatic, not nearly so in some ways vicious as this you in Mad Girl's Love Song. The villanelle as a form has this power to almost act as a kind of an incantation. If a poet is able to really create two refrain lines that have insight and complexity and a kind of spell-like charm like Plath has done here, when they come back again and again, there's, there's, a, there's a heavy insistence upon them. You're forced to reread these lines. You're forced to reimagine them. You're forced to reinterpret them. And the power and the intensity and the, uh, the sort of the never-letting-upness of these lines really profoundly contribute to the overall effect of the poem. So in other words, one almost couldn't imagine Mad Girl's Love Song as a normal poem and not as a villanelle. In other words, the form really creates largely what this poem now is. One could rewrite this poem and take the form out of it, but it wouldn't be even close to the same poem. It's really true in poetry that when, when working in a form, a poet has some limitations, of course, but also is able to maximize the inherent effects of that form in the service of what he or she really wants to communicate in that poem.
it's kind of like what Robert Frost said about free verse as opposed to uh, metered verse. He said writing free verse was like playing tennis without a net. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to a degree, I think he's I think he's absolutely correct about that. Free verse can have its own unofficial forms, depending on the poet and the circumstance. But in less skilled hands, free verse without any kind of real structure or formulation to it can be very saggy and baggy and tedious and long-winded. The same thing, in a sense, is happening with the villanelle. The villanelle is the net. It's the thing that's keeping the and, and the lines on the court. It's 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 the form. It's the structure. It's the boundary which is keeping a sort of tight hold on the energetic proceedings of what the poem wants to say. So the poem, as you read it, is the tennis ball going back and forth, keeping above the net and staying within the lines. And the villanelle form is that which is keeping it all in. And when you create friction, when you rub up against each other certain kinds of things in a limited space, you create heat. And that's, I think, what a good poetic form does. It generates a sort of an internal heat in a poem. So I think that's it for me today on Sylvia Plath's Mad Girl's Love Song. Next episode, I'm going to do one last villanelle, arguably the most famous villanelle, Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Feel free to check out the website, send me a comment, give me some advice, tell me what you like, tell me what you think I should improve. Um, we're trying to grow the podcast and have some fun doing it. And so, of course, we want to hear from you, the listener. Thank you very, very much, and we'll see you next time. Bye.